Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Today, we're talking about ethics, corruption, and money in politics, and who better to do that with than Noah Bookbinder. Noah is the president and CEO of CRU, which stands for Citizens for Responsible Ethics in Washington. Yes, there are still people who are for responsible ethics in Washington. CRU is a nonpartisan U.S. government ethics and accountability watchdog nonprofit organization. Noah joined CRU back in March 2015, shortly before former President Trump began his run for office. Prior to joining CRU, Noah served from 2013 to 2015 as the director of the Office of Legislative and Public Affairs at the United States Sentencing Commission. Before that, he served as chief counsel for criminal justice for the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. And before that, he worked as a former federal prosecutor in the public integrity section. So excited to talk to you, Noah. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Happy to be here. I think the first thing that I want to dive into is work that you've been doing around the 14th Amendment and a part of the 14th Amendment that maybe is not as well known, which is the disqualification clause. Just by way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about why the 14th Amendment, which most listeners probably think of in terms of equal protection or due process, but why it bears on this issue of who can be a federal office holder? Well, as I think probably a lot of people know, the 14th Amendment came to be uh, after the Civil War. Uh, and you know a lot of it was focused on providing equal rights for all American citizens. But one of the things that was happening in the wake of the Civil War was that people who had been leaders of the Confederacy, essentially people who uh, were part of an organized effort to overthrow the government of the United States, then sought to come back and uh, serve as officials in the United States um, and to undermine a lot of the gains and reforms that came from the Union victory in the Civil War. And so one of the things that the framers of the 14th Amendment sought to do was to say, if you were somebody who had sworn an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and then participated in insurrection against the United States, you could not then go back and, and, and serve as an official in the United States or in any of the states again. Uh, it was the idea that somebody who rebelled against the United States, who tried to overturn the laws of, of this country, should not then be in the position of making and enforcing those laws. Uh, so that's something that was put into place when the 14th Amendment uh, was implemented uh, 100, more than 150 years ago. And it was actually used to disqualify a number of former Confederate officials uh, from serving as U.S. government and state officials back in the 1860s. It's then mostly sat dormant for, for the, the intervening 150 years. It was used a little bit around World War I, but mostly it's been pretty inactive. So as you said, so many things that stood dormant suddenly became relevant again. Now, I know that you're currently involved in litigation surrounding the disqualification clause. 
Can you tell us, I know it's on appeal and there's certain things you can say and certain things you can't, but can you tell us basically what is that suit about? So crew and a number of, uh, a really great team of, of co-counsels represents three residents of New Mexico who sued uh, successfully to disqualify from office a guy named Cui Griffin, who was a county commissioner in Otero County, New Mexico. Uh, and he was also the founder of a group called Cowboys for Trump. Cui Griffin was on the steps of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. He was there with a bullhorn, uh, inciting and encouraging the crowd. Uh, he participated in the Women for America First bus tour, drumming up people to come to Washington on, on uh, January 6th. Uh, and on that day and afterwards, he uh, legitimized and normalized the, the violence and, and the lawbreaking on that day. So he was somebody who was directly involved in that insurrection. Uh, and this lawsuit sought to disqualify him from his, at the time, current position um, and, and any future position because he was someone who had sworn an oath to defend the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection. And actually, before the the trial happened, uh, he was somebody who participated in blocking certification of votes in New Mexico in 2022. So his his activities along those lines were continuing. The decision in that lawsuit uh, was incredibly significant. First of all, it, it did immediately remove Mr. Griffin from office. He is no longer serving as a county commissioner, uh, which in, in in New Mexico and in, in that area is an important position. Um, but it also was the first time that a court in the United States had found that uh, the efforts to overturn the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection constituted an insurrection for the purposes of, of the Constitution. Uh, and it was the first time that a court had disqualified anybody from office under the disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment, as far as we know, since 1869. That's so interesting. And one of the things that I know that we've been talking about when it comes to disqualification is obviously the f- former president. And I don't know if how much you want to weigh in on this, but when it comes to Mar-a-Lago and the search warrant, one of the federal statutes that's cited uh, says that basically if you violate it, then you're no longer able to hold public office, that you're disqualified from holding public office. In your studying and litigating about the disqualification clause, uh, do you know whether a statute can add a new qualification to the Constitution? My understanding is that that really cannot be the case. I think there are a lot of questions as to whether a, a statute can add a qualification for a constitutional officer like like president. Um, I don't know that that... that that particular question has been litigated and resolved, uh, but I think there, there are real questions as to that. I think in, in the case of the 14th Amendment's disqualification clause, uh, it's very clear that the Constitution can and does establish qualifications uh, for president. 
And I think that's such a helpful explanation that I was hoping you were going to go through, which is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which we've been talking about in terms of the disqualification clause and the Cooey Griffin case, that is obviously part of the Constitution, the constitutional requirements for holding office. And when we talk about a statute and Mar-a-Lago, that's a really a separate, that's a completely separate legal track, and that's a separate analysis. And I think you're exactly right to say just because basically this is the first time since I believe you said 1869 that a court has disqualified a public official under Section 3, that it may not be the last time and that it's fair for us to look at that provision. Now, I know that that case is ongoing and I know our time also is not unlimited. So Noah, I want to ask you about a completely separate issue that I know you've been working on as president and CEO of Crew, and that's judicial ethics. Now, just to lay the groundwork again for the listeners, are there codes of judicial ethics for federal judges? Do they apply to all federal judges? Are there certain rules of responsibility or canons that apply to all judges? Um, I'm being a little unfairly leading, but are, mm-hmm. is there a different set of rules maybe that apply to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So all federal judges, other than the Supreme Court, there are codes of conduct. Uh, there are rules that apply to them. There are also disciplinary bodies within the judiciary that can consider violations of codes of conduct, violations of ethics rules, in some cases, violations of law. There are a lot of arguments that there is, frankly, not enough there, that the ethics rules for federal judges are not as comprehensive as they ought to be, uh, and that because most of the enforcement is done by other judges, you don't have an independent body really looking at potential judicial misconduct. And we've seen some of the limitations that this framework provides, where the Wall Street Journal did some really powerful reporting within the past year, finding that in hundreds of cases, federal judges heard cases that involved companies in which they held stock, which is a thing that, that never should be happening. And it, and, and it shows that we need stronger regulations for all judges. But then when you get to the Supreme Court, it's a totally different story. The Supreme Court has no code of conduct that applies to it at all. There is some very basic federal law about things like conflicts of interest, uh, but there's no comprehensive code of conduct, and there's no process for examining ethics issues with the Supreme Court. When a Supreme Court justice has to decide whether or not they should recuse from a case, meaning that they have to decide whether they want to step back from a case because they may have a conflict, that decision rests with the justice themselves. And nowhere else within our government do we say, we trust this official to make all decisions about their own conduct. It's ripe for abuse and it's something that has been abused. So Noah, can you pick up on that for people who feel like maybe this is an amorphous concept? When has it been abused? So I think that there have been some sort of general categories of cases where where things have not gone as they should have. A number of members of the Supreme Court either do now or have in recent years own stock and have not recused from cases where where 
companies they own stock in have been implicated. So we've seen that same thing that happened with other federal judges. That's happened with the Supreme Court. I think far more disturbing are the instances that we've seen uh, recently, and, and the person for whom this has been most apparent has been Justice Clarence Thomas, where his wife's activities and work seem to be pretty directly implicated in cases that he is hearing. Um, and that actually does connect to the the January 6th insurrection issues that we were talking about before, uh, because one of the things that Clarence Thomas's spouse, Ginny Thomas, has been involved in, and we've now seen texts that establish this, uh, was reaching out to uh, the chief of staff, to President Donald Trump, as well as to state officials uh, to encourage efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, which meant that uh, not only did uh, Jenny Thomas have strong views about that issue, uh, but also when it came to White House documents involving uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 election, it's possible that Jenny Thomas could actually be implicated uh, in those documents because we know she was texting with the White House chief of staff. Um, so knowing that, it's deeply troubling uh, that Clarence Thomas did not recuse from the Supreme Court consideration of White House documents involving the January 6th insurrection and the efforts to overturn the election that were sought by Congress. In fact, he was uh, the only dissenter from uh, the court's uh, decision that the House of Representatives should get the documents that it was seeking. So, Noah, I think you've laid out really well what the problems are. The issue I have is that it doesn't seem to me that there are any good solutions. So let's say we have a mandatory code of ethics that applies to the Supreme Court. My issue has always been, and who enforces it? Because obviously, by definition, and we can hear by their name, they're the Supreme Court. So let's say that there is a code of ethics. It's mandatory. It applies to the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas, under that code, should recuse himself. And he doesn't. He says, no, actually, I can apply the facts of the law. I can do so in a neutral way. I'm just fine. Thank you. What happens next? Can you walk the listeners through a little bit of what's the mechanism here for enforcing that code? So I think the first thing is that it would make a difference just to have a code and one that is detailed and comprehensive, because right now, the standards that apply to the Supreme Court are so vague and amorphous that it's particularly easy for a justice to say this is not a problem. Um, that said, uh, there are ways of putting into place enforcement mechanisms. One thought is that you could select, for instance, a group of retired judges who could be in charge of making decisions about when there are conflicts of interests that uh, require justices to recuse from cases or making other sort of ethics determinations. You might be able to find people that the justices would trust and be willing to entrust with that responsibility, who the public would trust, uh, but you're not constitutionally taking away from the power of the court. It would certainly require the justices to surrender some of their complete discretion and complete authority over themselves. 
so a lot of it would actually deal with kind of changing norms and as I understand it, basically their voluntary compliance with saying, okay, we're going to give up some of our authority here because we think there's the need or a crisis of legitimacy or a a combination of things. Certainly there's a lot more to talk about there, but I know that we need to move on to our last big bucket here, which is truth social. And I think this brings up a number of important issues about social media and disinformation and misinformation. And what I really want to talk about is basically what is truth social and why is crew saying this shouldn't be on Google? It shouldn't be offered basically on mainstream platforms. So first beginning with, can you tell us what is truth social and why is it a problem? So in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, Donald Trump was finally removed from Twitter and a number of other social media accounts because companies like Twitter determined that his rhetoric and his incitement actually contributed to uh, the violence on that day. And after that, Donald Trump decided to launch this other social media platform, Truth Social, which essentially looks a whole lot like Twitter, but it's founded by Donald Trump and run by people close to him and uh, has become the place where he now puts the kinds of pronouncements that he had been putting on Twitter. And it also is a major business venture for Donald Trump. It's it's actually uh, the main reason why his net worth was actually seen as as increasing fairly significantly last year after it had decreased for a number of years. Within the past number of months, Truth Social has become a major forum for misinformation, particularly about elections, and also for violent rhetoric. There was actually, uh, in the wake of the raid of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, the FBI search of the Mar-a-Lago resort, uh, there was a person who attacked an FBI office in Cincinnati and wrote about his intentions beforehand and actually essentially live blogged his attack on Truth Social. Uh, So this is something that has been a forum for misinformation and for Uh, encouragement of violence, particularly in the wake of that FBI search. And because of that, Google and Apple should not be giving it a platform. Noah, I really can't thank you enough for passing judgment with us. I'm so happy to be here. This is a great discussion. So I want to remind our listeners that you can find Noah Bookbinder, the president and CEO of Crew, at Twitter, at Noah Bookbinder. It's spelled exactly as you think it would be. You can find me across social media at Levinson Jessica. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We'd love to hear from you more in terms of what you want to hear from us and what you'd like to hear us cover more or even less. That's welcome as well. So with that, we wish everybody a great day.